Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This week on Forum, we're looking back on our time in the pandemic. And today we'll be talking about the ways that we imagined the pandemic might go culturally and scientifically. COVID was unprecedented, but there were foundations for our societal responses to the virus. We'll have Scott Burns, who wrote Contagion, an eerily prescient film from 2011 about a deadly virus that became a touchstone of the early days of the pandemic. So we have a virus with no treatment protocol and no vaccine at this time. And then we'll talk with scientists and activists who battled AIDS here in San Francisco about how their experiences and research jump-started the fight against COVID. That's ahead on Forum right after this news. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal filling in this week as your guest host. I've got two little kids at home in Oakland. I'm a staff writer at The Atlantic magazine, and I've spent the past year co-running the COVID tracking project, interpreting the data each day. This morning, we're going to talk about the ways we imagined the pandemic might go. COVID truly has no precedent in modern life, but to epidemiologists, the idea that there'd be some kind of pandemic virus was more a question of when than if. There were many documents that tried to imagine what might happen if a fast-spreading infection hit the world. The official ones were pandemic preparedness plans created by cities, counties, states, and the nation itself. But the best-known translation of the research into what might happen is a 2011 movie, Contagion. On day one, there were two people, and then four, and then 16. In three months, it's a billion. That's where we're headed. In the early days of the pandemic, the film became a touchstone, and its big-name stars were even enlisted to do a public service announcement about COVID. Wash your hands like your life depends on it, because right now, in particular, it just might. Uh, Thank you, Kate. So now, to talk about what the film got right and what we've seen unfold in real life that could have never been predicted, we're joined by Scott Burns, the movie screenwriter. Welcome, Scott. Um, Hi, thanks for having me. So in the early weeks of the pandemic, people really hailed the realism of the film that you wrote, the way it seemed to predict those early weeks of chaos. How much of an impact do you think the film had in shaping people's expectations for what was going to come? It's really hard when you're inside of something to to imagine how other people perceive it. I think it's very strange also as a filmmaker – to have something that, you know, you, you did 10 years ago, all of a sudden um, return to relevance. But, you know, it does seem like a lot of people found some comfort in in watching the film and other people, you know, found it very frightening. And and how about you? When you first started hearing about the, the virus uh, circulating in Wuhan, what were you thinking? 
You know, all as you just said, all all of the scientists who I worked with on the film, and you know, I was really fortunate to have amazing, amazing um, colleagues on it. You know, Dr. Ian Lipkin at the Mailman School of Public Health in New York was our technical advisor. Larry Brilliant, who is in the Bay Area, who's sort of a legendary epidemiologist, was was sort of the first person I spoke to. It, but all of the people I spoke to always said what you just said, which was, it's not a matter of if this is going to happen, it's a matter of when. And in fact, you know, one of the first things I looked at was a a simulation that existed online um, called Dark Winter that I think Homeland Security had run in the aughts. And that was about a bioterror attack. Um, But it it showed me that this was something that was, was taken serious at certain levels of government, at least at that time. Yeah. Did you read a lot of the pandemic preparedness plans and, and look at the scenarios like the one that you you mentioned, or was it mostly relying on scientists to sort of, you know, bring that knowledge into the film? It was, I was mainly relying on scientists. I did go to CDC to talk to them, and there was this spectacular war room that they had that, you know, was at the ready get some understanding of how the CDC interacts with individual states. And one of the things that, you know, became fascinating to me was, you know, and and was a cause concern for that for them at the time was that state kind of has its own public health department and they need to be invited, you know, they need to invite in the CDC. And so, you know, it hadn't occurred to me that we would have such a patchwork response, um, and and that that became scary to me even even then. Yeah, we're talking about how we imagine the pandemic might go with the contagion screenwriter Scott Burns, and we want to hear from you. How did COVID nineteen match or diverge from your preconceptions about a pandemic? Call us at eight six six seven three three six seven eight six. That's eight six six seven three three six seven eight six. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We are at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. You know, rewatching the film last night, Scott, I was struck by, you know, how powerful the institutions seem uh, in the movie. Even, even as they're overwhelmed, you know, they seem functional. And it, and it really does feel um, like a like an Obama era film about you know national and, and international um, institutions, was that an intentional uh, way of showing the the global health community? Well, that was my experience of it at the time. I mean, obviously, as you said, you know, no one had seen a pandemic in quite a while. Um, you know, Ian Lipkin, as I said, you know, worked on SARS. Um, in I think 2003. Um, and so, you know, I had some understanding and, and because of quick work by the CDC and WHO um, and Canada, uh, you know, SARS never, never turned out to be the coronavirus that this is. Um, and so I, you know, my feeling was that the institutions were strong enough and that there were really good people in place and, you know, that we would be able to handle these things. The thing I couldn't imagine 
was that we would have a federal government and a moment in time politically where instead of you know serving the people and taking care of them, we would turn this into a really tragic, divisive, bipartisan issue, which you know the virus the virus doesn't really care if you're a Democrat or a Republican. It doesn't really care if you believe in it. It doesn't really care if you subscribe to conspiracy theories. It's really, you know, just interested in your cells. And, you know, that I, I couldn't believe when I started to see, you know, the political football that it turned into. Well, you know, one of the film's most interesting commentaries is really on the information ecosystem. You know, one of the characters is sort of a, a blogger turned conspiracy theorist of which, you know, we have many of those people uh, floating around the, the COVID uh, information universe. Um, when you were writing that character, what were you drawing on to imagine um, a conspiracy-laced world? You know, this is long before QAnon and, and Alex Berenson. Um, you know, a rich history of hucksterism in our own country and elsewhere. Um, there actually is a history of profiteering um, on pandemics that goes back to the Middle Ages. And there's also a history of people appropriating the narrative to advance, you know, xenophobic um, kinds of agendas that they have. And so, you know, I think in the Middle Ages, there was a period of time where it was suggested that the, the Jews were in, you know, responsible for the bubonic plague and not rats. Um, and so I did know that there was a, you know, a likelihood that people would use this either to, to push fake cures, um, because that had happened before, and that also people would use this to create you know, narratives that, that suited their agendas. So that, that seemed apparent to me, you know, even then, um, oddly, my father and I had had a lot of conversations about how the internet could be a mixed blessing in this situation, that it was just as likely to push out bad information as good information. Well, and that did turn out really to be the, to be the case. Um, Noel tweets, the scientists in the film were the heroes. In real life, some politicians and right-wing conspiracy theorists made them into villains. Did you intend to write a movie in which the scientists were, were heroes? Yeah. Um, I think that in this situation, um, a lot of them are. You know, Kate Winslet's character plays an EIS officer. It's an epidemiological investigative services officer, which was something I didn't know about um, you know, and it seems like a pretty unlikely title for a movie hero. But it's incredibly brave for someone to go into the middle of an outbreak and try and get good information and try and do science and try and spread public health. Um, you know, when I used to go on airplanes and I would see people wearing masks, I would assume, oh, my God, they're sick. And, and I began to learn that, oh, my God, they're actually concerned about other people and that they don't want to get other people sick. And I think there is heroism in the compassion that suggests one thing that we still all have to do is take care of one another. You know, we share a lot of a lot of public spaces and that that to me was, you know, the revelation of the film was that public health could have been 
an expression of empathy and concern for your fellow person had this pandemic been you know, pitched to us by, by different leaders who would have said, let's work together, not let's rip each other apart. You know, Denise asks, why did you make Contagion when you did? What was the impetus? And I, I think at least one bit of context here that's interesting is we just had seen at that time H1N1, uh, a, a strain of influenza that would seem to be quite dangerous and actually seemed like there was a, a perception of overreaction um, from federal authorities at, at that time. Uh, yeah, it, it was a very bizarre coincidence. I mean, in all honesty, I had been talking to, like I said, my father about um, bird flu throughout the aughts. And, you know, I had seen um, the movie Outbreak when when I was a, a kid. And I always felt that the science was, was a little bit loose on that. Um, and so it, it was sort of coincidental. I found it really strange that, you know, that the outbreak... Um, happened when I was actually in New York doing research for the film. Um, and so the two sort of happened at the exact same time. I remember meeting a writer and scientist named Lori Garrett, who came to meet with me and I stuck out my hand to, to meet her. And she said, we're not doing that right now. <laughs> we'll be back with uh, more from Scott Burns, the Contagion screenwriter, after this break. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. This is Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about how we imagined the pandemic might go with Contagion screenwriter Scott Burns. And we're joined by Anne Ramoyne, professor at the Center for Global and Immigrant Health at UCLA's Fielding School of Public Health. Welcome to the show, Anne. Nice to be here. So we've been talking about what Contagion got right um, and the, the aspects of it that were made it a touchstone of the early pandemic. Um, and I'm also wondering about as we saw COVID-19 unfold over this past year, you know, we now have experience with a, with a pandemic virus. What are the things that didn't get right, um, at least about the virus we're dealing with now? Well, I think that there are, there are a lot of things that, that contagion really hit perfectly. And, and I think that, that you know, we're, we're all really understanding the effect of a pandemic. But of course, the things that that we didn't account for were things like uh, what would actually happen with a public health system uh, that that was under uh, was was underfunded, a public health system that had had uh, you know years of of underfunding and and all the shortfalls 
you know, I think that we also didn't take into account the uh, the politicization of science in a way that would be so profound in terms of how government services and the whole world would react. Uh, so I think that, that those are the things that we definitely did not take into account. I think we we also, you know, because when, you, when you're talking about a film versus a, a, a reality, it's that some of the mundane details, I think, are the things that really that really have tripped us up and uh, have has probably been surprising to everybody over time. Yeah. You know, one of the um, great tropes of the movie is this sort of shot counter shot with people staring at other people touching surfaces. And I remember this happened to me at, at Berkeley Bowl, realizing, you know, how many surfaces I really touched and how often I touched my face and, and those um, sorts of, of things. And it seemed to be um, the primary way that a virus like this might get transmitted in the early days. Dr. Ramon, what what changed in that um, as we learned more about the virus? Well, I think you know, what we've learned about the virus is that this is a this is really a respiratory pathogen where transmission, you know, the vast majority of transmission happens because of the 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 respiratory nature of this virus, and that the virus doesn't doesn't even though in principle in a laboratory setting the virus can sit for days on on surfaces that that's really not the primary mode of course you know we all are are now very aware of what happens if somebody does uh, cough on something of droplets spread uh, to to you know an elevator button you touch it you touch your face but but i think what we learned early on here is you don't want to spend 90% of the time uh, 90% of your effort working on 10% of transmission reduction, and and so I think that that that's definitely something that that we've we've learned a lot about. We've learned so much about aerosol transmission, so much about how well masks work, how how well ventilation works. I, you know, these are things that that we had some idea previously, but we just didn't have the research to be able to to truly understand how important. Uh, certain things were to be able to prevent spread of respiratory pathogens. We're certainly going to be a lot better about it in the future. Yeah. I'm thinking about what was what else was surprising about COVID relative to the hypothetical scenarios that, that people had, had game planned for. What else really stands out to you? Is it asymptomatic transmission? You know, like in the movie, when somebody gets sick and they're going to get you sick, they look sick. And that's not always the, the case with COVID. Right. I think, you know, I... I that my career working in places like the Democratic Republic of Congo, working on things like Ebola and thinking about what role does asymptomatic infection play. Uh, and and it, we're still learning about this. And and certainly I think that the, the, the idea of asymptomatic infection in terms of a, a you know, viral transmission is not new and certainly not pre, pre-symptomatic transmission is not new either. But I think the extent to which it plays a role in transmission certainly was surprising to, to, to many uh, how much not just pre-symptomatic being symptomatic a few days before you start having symptoms. We know this with influenza, we know this with measles, we know this with, with many viruses, but, but actual asymptomatic infection from start to finish and how, how, how much of a role that can play in transmission has certainly been surprising, I think. Yeah. Um... You know, we hear that there's possibly a philosophical sequel that's going on, Scott, between you and Steven Soderbergh um, to Contagion. 
What can you tell us about um, that project? Absolutely nothing. No, um, <laughs> it's something that we continue, you know, to to talk about. Stephen's pretty busy, um, you know, with with some projects of his own, and um, I'm I'm shifting my focus back to a, a climate change project. Um, so if if we do get to that, it'll it'll be a little bit off in the future. But I think for both Stephen and I, you know, again, the things that that we didn't get to about what, you know, how, how these things become tracer bullets through every problem in our society, um, the political problems, our own, you know, proclivities as, as messy little animals. I mean, to think that, if, you know, if someone had told you, you know, a year and a half ago, that if you wore a piece of fabric over your mouth and nose, you could save a half million lives of your neighbors. I think most of us would have felt okay about saying yes. And yet, you know, I, I just got back from walking my dogs and I can, I can tell you that people, you know, still are, are, are not doing that. Dr. Ramon, are you surprised by the level of adherence to public health advice out there in the world? You know, I, I'm, I would say I'm more surprised about the lack of adherence to public health advice in the world and, and how public health has become so politicized. I mean, things that I, I, that's been the, I think, the, the biggest factor that none of us really accounted for. I mean, certainly when you watch Scott, uh, Scott's movie, when you think about contagion, you know, there was a lot of, there, there was an undercurrent of, of people who were espousing anti-science and, you know, fake cures and, and those things, of course, we've seen those things. But I think that the, the, the real politicization of things like just the simple act of wearing a mask uh, has, has really shocked all of us in the public health community. Um, but but on the, the good side of things, I would also say I, I, I think that there's some, some real champions here that we didn't really think of in the past. And that's how I think, you know, all of the public health community, when given the opportunity to be able to get messages out in the face of, uh, you know, an administration that was not able to uh, clearly articulate risks, uh, really has has saved lives and made a very big difference. I think that the importance of public health communication uh, as, as not only uh, just an important reinforcement, but in, in many ways, the, the real answer uh, when you don't have governments and government agencies and the agencies that you think are supposed to be doing this uh, actually making a difference, I, I think is, is really important. So, you know, one thing that I'm curious about, um, you know, especially at, at this point, you know, a year into um, the pandemic, do you wish that you'd communicated anything differently in the early days, say, about masks or, or other things? Um, well, you know, you know, I, go ahead, Annie. Well, I, I would say, I, you know, early on, we were having discussions. I think that I, I mean, I would say early on, I was, I was, you know, one of the people talking about masks, and it just made good common sense to be able to use masks, even though we didn't have the the evidence, you know, the, the hard scientific evidence that that we needed. It, it made good common sense, and and we knew how 
how important masks were in general. But I, I do think that the public health community, um, you know, and the, the scientific community maybe didn't wasn't able to to communicate the subtlety of some of this information early on and really be able to to say, hey, well, you know, you have to save N95s for for health workers, but wear a mask, wear a face covering. I I think all of those things should have, you know, ideally been talked about much earlier. And and one of the things that the scientific community often has trouble with, they're they're communicating things when it's not perfectly clear, when you don't have all of the evidence behind you. And I think that the that, that we've we've all learned in this community how important it is to to say, well, here's what we know, here's what we don't know. It seems like a really good idea. I think you should do it. And 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 that's something I think that has changed significantly over time. Thank you. This has been Contagion screenwriter Scott Burns and Dr. Anne Ramoyne, professor at the Center for Global and Immigrant Health at UCLA's Fielding School of Public Health. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, and I hope you'll join me on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Every Thursday, I'm getting the inside take from the best reporters in the country on what figures like Elon Musk, Donald Trump, Kevin McCarthy, and Marjorie Taylor Greene are doing. I think she wants to make things happen. She wants to get legislation passed. She made clear to me that she wants to have a president who upholds Christian values. She embraces the term Christian nationalist. That's Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Available wherever you get your podcasts.